Hello? Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Someone heard me. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'm going to pray first for that, and then I'll pray again for my message. That's okay. And uh, I hope it encourages us to pray more and more after hearing the encouraging words from the pastor at the Discovery Church in St. Cloud and from Tim. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us and your presence here today. And thank you that, that, that it worked out in your providence and your sovereignty that Tim could be here this weekend to explain to our church better of, of what we're concerning as a church to support this group. And Lord, we pray that you be with those four workers, those two men and two women who work amongst the, the Filipino community, the Iranian community, that you would bless their efforts to keep them safe, to keep them united in purpose, united to each other, that you be with the other groups that are also ministering and throughout the Muslim world, not just in the Philippines, Lord God, that we would have a love for that, those people, just like you love them. We can be scared of Muslims. They have not been necessarily nice to us. We think about that a lot, but you love them, Lord God, and pray that you would just work in that group and have a revival in that people groups, in those people groups. Your name we pray. Amen. Okay, my name is Tom Howard. I am an elder at our church here. And uh, uh, Pastor Joe is, is on his second week of a vacation to uh, Texas. And he'll be coming back, I believe, this week. And the elder board has asked me to bring the message again this year. I've done it the past two years. been able to do it two years ago and this year. Uh, Joe just finished a lengthy uh, uh, sermon through the book of Luke. He went uh, verse by verse and, and uh, chapter by chapter. He said last two weeks ago at church, he said that it took him 20 months to get through the book of Luke. So I decided, you know what? It worked for Joe. I'm going to do the same thing. So I'm going to be going through the book of John. Okay, cause I did my, two years ago, I went through the first half of the John chapter 1. And then, the second, then last year, I did the second half of John chapter 1. So this year, as you figure out, I'll be doing the first part of chapter 2 of John. At this rate, <laughs> I'll be done in about 40 years. Okay? Do the math, okay? Okay, so without further ado, uh, I'll read John chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Okay, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do, no, sorry, yeah. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he, said, then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, 
and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, so they say that the number one fear in America is what? Fear of public speaking, okay? Um, you know what the number two fear is? Going to the dentist. I'm glad to report that it's not going to the doctor. Okay. My informal, uh, my informal research as a physician, I think the number three fear is having a colonoscopy. Okay. Okay. So, based on my talking to patients about having colonoscopy. So I could tell you, I would say in my self-analysis, my self-inspection is that I, I've had a colonoscopy. I wasn't scared about it. I go to the dentist regularly. I'm sure I'm, I might, me and my family are, with the exception of one of my daughters with no cavities, are putting his kids through college. I'm not scared to go into the dentist. I never thought that I had a fear of public speaking. But really, as in preparing for this sermon and all the sermons I've been able to do, my fear really is that I say what I should say. You know, I say the truth. And that what I say is interpreted correctly and God uses it. Okay? And I, that's my prayer that I would pray right now. And I'll pray, I'll pray for that and then we'll get going. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us. Once again, I get to pray to you. And, and I, Lord, I, I trust what Tim says, that the prayer does make a difference. And uh, I thank you for your love for us. I pray that you would use what I say today, that it is said accurately and for your glory. In, in your name we pray. And also, also, Lord God, I pray for Pastor Joe and his family, that they would have a restful conclusion to their vacation, that they would be able to return to us safely uh, and be ready and refreshed to, to continue ministering to our church. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so as I said, I uh, went through chapter one the past two years. So in, in quick review, for those of you who can't remember, or if you weren't here, okay, uh, uh, the book of John was written by the apostle John, the disciple John, the, John, the so-called the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. It was written uh, between A.D. 85 to A.D. 95, John's brother, John's brother was James and also a disciple and his father was Zebedee. Uh, much of the first half of chapter 1 is called the prologue. It talks about John the Baptist. So we got John the author, John the disciple, and John the Baptist. What was, who was John the Baptist? What was his job? John the Baptist was a witness to testify concerning Christ so that his hearers would believe the hearers uh, of Christ. He pointed people living in darkness to light and the light was Jesus. How did he do his job? Well, he baptized people. That's why they called uh, him John the Baptist. And he baptized them to repentance. What was being done at the time was a ritual. The people were being baptized. The Jewish people were being baptized for ritual cleansing, not for repentance. Okay? And what is repentance? And what is the repentance of baptism? The baptism of repentance. In Matthew three eleven, John the Baptist is quoted as saying, I baptize you with, with water, for repentance, but, one, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what's repentance? It's a change of mind. It's deep sorrow or remorse for past sin or wrongdoing or things we've done or things that we should have done that we knew better we should do. It's, we're sorry for that. It's a realization that wrong has been done and a shift or reversal of our thoughts or in order. So going on in chapter 1, 
In verse 29, Jesus was with some people there, including his disciples, and he proclaims, he sees Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. Later in verse 31, he says, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. The connection between John the Baptist and Jesus is that John is baptizing people who make a testimony of a radically changed life based on the sorrow and a remorse for the things they've done. Their sins. They've committed sins. They're sorry for it. They want to change. These people are then ready and, and, and waiting for someone who actually could forgive them. It's one thing to be sorry. It's another thing to have someone who can forgive you. You can tell the cop you're sorry. He can give you the ticket or not. Okay? Christ is the one who doesn't give us the ticket. Okay? He comes onto the scene as a sacrificial lamb who not only takes away their sins, but the sins of the entire world. So the second half of chapter 1 introduces the reader, us, to Christ's initial encounter with five of his first disciples. These are the disciples that are with Jesus and Mary at the wedding that we're talking about in Cana in chapter 2. In verse 35 to 37 of chapter 1 again, John the Baptist is with two of his disciples. One of them is identified of, uh, as Andrew. The other one is felt to believe John, is to be John, who is not specific, explicitly stated in the verse, but people believe that was John. John the, John the author of the book. Uh, the Gospel of John. Okay, these, the, these two men, John the Baptist sees Christ, identifies that's the one. Andrew and John follow Christ after hearing John the Baptist's testimony. Andrew meets him. He tells his brother, Simon Peter, okay, about Christ. And they both follow Jesus. Christ later sees Philip on the side of the road. And he says, follow me. Philip goes to get Nathaniel, an acquaintance of his. And they, they come to Christ as well. Uh, Christ impresses Nathaniel by recounting the events when Philip saw him. And he, uh, uh, he prompted Nathaniel to say in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Christ then says in verse 50, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. That's what, that's what Aunt Philip and Nathaniel was doing when Philip came to him and told him about Christ. Christ wasn't there, but Christ told Nathaniel what, what, what was going on. He says, but the end of verse 50, you will see greater things than that. Okay? So now in the beginning of chapter 2, we see the first of many other greater things that Nathaniel and the others will witness Christ doing. So we have the people who attended the wedding three days after the calling of, of Philip and Nathaniel. They were in Bethany at the time. Okay, uh, that was a two days journey from Bethany to Cana in Galilee. These people at the wedding, we know, we see from our text, is are Jesus, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. They're not identified, but they're by name. But that's who was there at the in chapter one. Also at the wedding was Mary. Okay, and obviously the guests. And we have the, the master of the banquet, and you have the bride and the bridegroom. So let's go see what happens in this passage, verse by verse, in, in the manner that uh, Pastor Joe has done. Okay, the first five verses of this passage talk about the crisis uh, 
as it were. The crisis in Cana. What is, what is the big deal here, right? So first, before we do that, let's learn more about uh, weddings at the time, Jewish weddings at the time. Information about this is found in the, in the it's called the Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H. And the Mishnah is a compilation of oral laws and traditions that was written in the A.D. 200. Okay? The bridegroom and his friends uh, made their way in procession to the groom's, to the bride's house. Okay? This was often done at night and where there could be a spectacular torchlight procession. So you got there, they're going to the bride's house. There were doubtless speeches and expressions of goodwill before the bride and the groom went in procession back to the groom's house where the wedding banquet was held. Uh, there could be a religious ceremony. We don't know all the details. We just know that they, their procession to the bride's place, back to the groom's, bridegroom's place, and the banquet was held. And the banquet could last for up to a week. Okay? So, what's Mary's role? Mary's there, right? What is her job there? Yeah. Um, she seems, appears to be more than just a guest, an invited guest at this wedding. Do we see? She appears to be helping with the arrangements in some respect, especially serving of the food and of the wine. So well into the festivities, we don't know when during that week or so, but she became aware of a most embarrassing situation or a crisis as it were, okay? The wine has run out, okay? And there appears to be no solution to this crisis. Either there's no more wine available or perhaps no money uh, to buy more wine. Okay, at a Jewish feast, feast, wine was essential, okay? It's not that people were drunken, because drunkenness was actually, in fact, a disgrace. Wine was, actually, wine was drank in a mixture composed of one to two parts wine to three parts water. This is basically a failure of the bride and the bridegroom to provide adequate refreshment for these attendees who are there for a long time. These are invited guests, and they need refreshment, and it's not being provided. This would bring great humiliation to the bride and bridegroom. Some commentators suggest that maybe even litigation might be result of that. Now, can you imagine that? Uh, being sued for not having adequate refreshments at a wedding. Anyway, so other guests seem unaware of what's going on. Okay? Jesus' mother seems to step in and take charge of the situation, and she informs Jesus, hoping that he might do something uh, about the situation. So when I read this verse for years, I've always thought his answer to her was, was somewhat rude or unusual, he ref- or unkind. He refers to her as woman or a dear woman. I wouldn't respond to my mother. I wouldn't call her woman. I call her mother, <laughs> mom, uh, ma'am, <laughs> whatever, probably. Uh, but that, in fact, was a kind expression to his mother. Later in chapter 19 of John, verse 26, Christ is at the cross, basically, near death. And he's talking to John and Mary. And he, he says, dear woman. Uh, and he's, asking, he's actually asking her, he's actually making arrangements at the time for John to care for her needs after she dies. So it was a very compassionate way to refer to them, not an unkind way, even though we wouldn't refer to our mothers that way necessarily in our culture. The second part of the sentence also seemed a little bit disrespectful. 
Why do you involve me? That's what he says. Another version translates that, that phrase as, Why are you saying this to me? In Mark 5, chapter 7, there's a demon-possessed man. He says to Jesus, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is the same Greek expression by which the demon is trying to distance himself from Jesus. He begs Jesus not to trouble him, not to take his demonic existence more, to make his demonic existence more miserable. Jesus is using the same type of expression here as the demon is to Christ. Uh, Basically, uh, Mary thinks, okay, why, she thought she, why, why Mary thinks that the wine is his problem, okay, and not hers, okay? As his mother, she might think, you know, he, he's my kid. This is a problem I'm sensing. He needs to do something about it. And, but real, in reality, uh, yes, he's your child, but he's, his true father is God, right? She really has no authority over him, Okay? It's almost as if Mary is saying, Jesus, they're out of wine. We, we really need to do something about this. And Jesus says, um, ma'am, what do you mean by we? Okay, not my problem. Okay. okay, so notice that Jesus did not say no. He didn't say yes. He simply reminds her of their change in roles and relationships. Okay, he is no longer her little boy doing what he should do. He did, he obeyed his, Jesus obeyed his mother and father, his parents. Okay, but things are changing now. Uh, he is the Messiah, okay? He must obey his true father. And that's this flip here, right? Okay, since he's obediently following God, he is sensitive to God's timetable as well. Jesus informs his mother that my hour has not yet come. It is not his, yet his hour or his time. This is referring to the time of his public debut as the Messiah, the time or hour when he showed the real reason for why he came to earth. Christ had a heavenly timetable that was, not, that was marked for him by God and not by his mother. Okay? So mother, Mary hears this explanation for Christ. She tells the servants at the wedding, do whatever he tells you. She does not argue with him, for he has made his point. She does not plead with him. By her words, she, it seems that she leaves her request in his hands to, do, to deal with as he sees fit. He may not tell his servants to do anything, yet if he does, it's to, do, have to do anything, he says, do it. They should obey, for then it is his good pleasure and done in his good time. So now we see, that's the crisis that we have here, right? So now we see how Christ solves this problem. And that would be the second part, verses 6 through 10. And the bulletin. The solution lie in using the six stone jars, the six stone jars that were nearby. Okay? These jars were there to be used for ceremonial washings, as it's found in our, in our Bible. Their capacity was 20 to 30 gallons each. Okay, ceremonial washing was what a Jewish person would do for purification before and after meals. Okay? Uh, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, that talks about how Jewish people thought about ceremonial washings. They saw G- the, the, the teachers of the law, saw Jesus and some of his, of his disciples 
eating food with unclean or ceremonially unwashed hands. Verses 3 to 4 of chapter 7 of Mark says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they, they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So knowing this, we can see why a Jewish wedding might have a, a substantial amount of water nearby, okay? Nearby within the sight of our Lord, it would seem, there are six large jars, okay? Jesus told the servants to fill the jars to the brim. Presumably the jars were partially full, uh, but they typed them on. They certainly, they did follow what Jesus said. They topped them off. And now we have up to 180 gallons of water that's available for Christ to act. So when, the, when they're full, when they're filled, Jesus instructs the servants to draw some of the water out from the pots and serve it to the master of the feast, the master of the banquet. Okay? Here is where Mary's words to the servants are put to the test. Now imagine if you were, if you're a servant, those servants, they know that there was, they know what, what's in those jars. They know what those jars were used for. They know what, what was in there and they know what they put into that thing. And now Jesus is asking them to serve that to the master of the banquet. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Okay, just think that for a second. Uh, they're gonna get, they could possibly get, get in trouble. They, we, don't know when, when, we don't know when the water turned to wine. Okay? We don't see where Jesus touched the water and he prayed and it miraculously turned to wine. Okay? We don't see where Jesus didn't even did anything to the water. He just asked them to serve it. He didn't, nor, nor did he really give them an inside uh, scoop. You know, it's okay. I've taken care of that. Just serve it to him. It's going to taste really good. You're not going to get in trouble. Okay? So, the head steward had no idea what happened either, right? But the servants knew. There must be some suspense there. So the servant, so the headmaster tastes the, tastes the wine. Still, what are the servants going to think? What, what is he thinking? Are they going to get, is he going to spit it out? Okay. But with a smile, the, the head, the, the master of the banquet proclaims to the bridegroom in verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. The master of the banquet notes that this is a timing is a little unorthodox. Usually you, when the, patient, when the people's taste is a little bit less discerning, as it were, after drinking a lot of wine for days and days, they wouldn't notice that inferior wine was being served. But this is the best wine yet. The bridegroom has outdone himself, saving the very best until last. What moments earlier looked like certain shame for the couple, for the bridegroom certainly, now is miraculously turned to sudden fame for the bridegroom and the head steward. So now notice in this passage that who knows what happened? Okay? The only people at the wedding that we can see from the verse that know what happened, that, that this, something extraordinary was done, were Jesus and Mary, the servants, and the five disciples. Okay? 
The master of the banquet, the bride and the groom, the other attended guests don't know what happened. So this is really not a big spectacular event in the, in the scope of who witnessed it by any means. Okay, it did, however, have an effect beyond simply saving this young couple from social embarrassment or perhaps even legal problems that we talked about. This miracle was much more than a, the solution to a crisis uh, that Mary noticed. In verse 11, at the end, we see that this was the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So what's a miraculous sign? Okay? According to Holman's Bible Dictionary, uh, miracles are events in unmist- which unmistakably involve an immediate and powerful action of God designed to reveal his character or his purposes. Other words used with as miracles would be signs, wonders, mighty works, or powers. It's when... God does something beyond what could be accomplished according to the laws of nature as we understand them and which actually might be in violation of laws of nature as we understand laws of nature. It's beyond our intellectual ability to fathom or a scientific ability to reproduce. Okay? Science, wonders, and miracles occurred in the Bible and primarily in four different periods of biblical history. It occurred... Uh, during the time of Moses, as he, the people were exiled, getting ex- exiting Egypt into the Promised Land, it occurred during the time of uh, the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Quite a few miracles happened then. Lots of miracles happened in the time of Daniel, the lions den, and and the dream interpretation, those things, and obviously a lot of miracles, signs, wonders, happened during the time of Christ. Okay, in the Old Testament. A sign and wonder were used most often of the, of the words that they used to describe these things. A sign is an object or daily activity as well as unexpected divine action. A wonder is God's supernatural activity on earth. They both, both of these things, when done, seek, uh, uh, sought, or they, they sought to bring belief. Okay? For example, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses is getting ready, he's being told by God he's going to be going back to Egypt to not only convince Pharaoh to let him, his people go, but to convince the Israelite, the Hebrew people to follow the guy. I mean, he's got two, lots of people to convince. Moses, rightfully so, is kind of anxious about this. How can I do this? I, you know? And so God, so, uh, Jesus, uh, so he said in verse 1, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? So that's, what, that's Moses talking to God. God then did a demonstration for Moses in turning Moses' staff into a snake. And then he picked the, picked the snake up and it turned back into a staff. God then said in verse 5, this sign is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. We know that it took several signs and wonders done by God through his servants Moses and Aaron to get Pharaoh to ultimately let God's chosen people leave Egypt. So a sign in and of itself does not compel someone to believe, but it, but it certainly brings people 
to belief. Okay? It's seeking to bring them to belief. It does not compel them to believe. That's the Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, the Greek word for sign is semelon, S-E-M-E-L-O-N. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's used of miracles taken as evidence of divine authority. A sign has been said as a miracle with a message. Warren Wiersbe says that a sign points beyond itself to something greater. It was not enough for people to believe in Christ's works or his miracles. They had to believe in him and the Father who sent him. Wonders, uh, the Greek word for wonder is teras. What does that sound like? Terror, okay? Comes from the, that's where we get the word terror, is teras. A wonder is something unusual that causes the beholder to marvel. So wonders appear to appeal to our imagination and signs appeal, appeal to our understanding, okay? So Jesus performed miraculous signs during his earthly ministry. Lots of them, right? This is the first miraculous sign okay, recorded. These served to demonstrate his deity, you know, that he was God, he was part of the Godhead, he was God's son, to prove that he was sent from God, to minister in compassion to needy multitudes, and in this case, to a needy couple, and to, and to lead followers to saving faith in Christ. So some important, some examples or an example of an important purpose for miraculous signs done by Christ is you can find in Mark chapter 2. That's where Christ sees a paralytic man being lowered to him, to his room by four of his friends through the roof. The room was too full. These these friends have this man who can't walk and they let Christ, so they, they can't get him into the room. It's so full. So they make a hole in the roof and they lower this man down. Jesus saw their faith, okay? And he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law in attendance questions Christ's ability to forgive this man's sin. Jesus then said in verses 9 through 12, Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, your, get up take up your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, Christ, in talking to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone as they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Therefore, this example, okay, uh, of healing a paralytic man, in addition to performing a, ver- a life-changing miracle for this man, okay, uh, served to, as evidence of Christ's ability to do what he came to do, that being forgiving sins, not just healing people who can't walk. He proved that he could forgive sins. Additionally, mir- lots of miracles Christ did, right? Think of the miracle of him coming to earth in the first place, okay? A virgin birth and all that involved with that. Think of him being raised from the dead or the resurrection, how miraculous that is. Think of his ascension back to heaven. Okay. And I'll quote from a a Wycliffe Bible dictionary about this. And it's a little high language, but please bear with me. Okay. Without the miraculous element, Christianity would have no message, no solace for our age. A Jesus who is merely a martyr for the truth, a prince for philanthropists, a paragon of ethical teachers, 
will present to man only a threadbare idealism. Basically, I'll paraphrase, a Christ who can't perform miracles is not the Christ that we need. The only answer to the choppy seas of life is a Savior who can say, peace be still, and it happens. Okay, think about that for a second. The only hope for victory over satanic power is through the one whom the demons recognized and obeyed. The only hope for the body in this life and the next lies in the one who, the Lord, who, who is the Lord of life and death. So we have hope for life after death as Christians because God's supernatural. The only hope for the souls rests in the one who died for our sins and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us. Listens to our intercession that we're talking about praying for this random people group. So, what does this miraculous sign done at Cana tell us? Beyond providing a solution to the crisis that Mary noticed for this new couple in providing the customary refreshment for the guests at their wedding. One thing we see uh, about this miraculous sign is that Christ's glory was revealed to his disciples. In verse 11, I'll read again. What Jesus did here in Canaan and Galilee was the first of the signs which through, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what does revealed his glory mean and why would it cause the disciples to believe in Christ? The Greek word for glory is doxa. It's, re- it's referring to the fullness or sum of all the perfections of Christ, all of Christ's perfections that none of us have. We might have them in small parts, but none of us have these things. That's Christ's glory. In chapter 1, verse 14, they, John says, we've seen his glory. He, and, and, and I'm making it short here, but Christ, he's full of grace and truth. We're not full of grace and truth. He's full of it. And that's all good stuff to be full of. That's a glory of Christ. It's one of his perfections. Okay, the word doxa in the Greek is closely linked to the Hebrew word, which is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. And that word in Hebrew is uh, kavad. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, that is, and that is the weighty importance that accompanies God's presence. The weighty importance that accompanies God's presence. Giving false praise to God, Christ, does not recognize his power, the importance relative to our own. The weight of his glory or his position relative to our own. We praise God, but we're not really mindful of, this is God. Okay, I'm praising. Yeah. He's, he's God and I'm not. Two praise for Christ recognizes his divine glory, his perfections. And in this case, this exhibited here, his, the perfection, the fact that he has power, power to change water to wine. So the weight of Christ's glory from the Hebrew sense is immense. Even though it's revealed in a rather unspectacular manner. This is rather, it's an unspectacular change of water to wine and it was very would you say inconspicuous very few people saw it okay uh, however it was still glorious nonetheless and the disciples recognized that so once they recognized it because Christ revealed it to them okay 
they believed in him at the end of verse 11. They, uh, that can also be correctly translated the disciples put their faith or their trust in him. Belief and faith and trust are all the same meaning. Okay? Uh, they certainly had no, has, they already expressed some interest in Christ. I mean, they followed Christ from Bethany to Cana. They said they were invited guests, but they still came with Christ. Christ had already impressed Nathaniel, and by telling him something pretty cool that he knew what happened to Nathaniel. So they, there was something they knew about Christ. But uh, now they got the inside look of Christ turning water into wine. Uh, this results in them believing in Christ. They put their faith in him, and they started to trust him. Okay? Now this, now, this is the initial faith of these five men. This faith would be developed and tested as they experienced Christ's revelation to them. They walked with Christ for about three years, right? Um, revealed who Christ was and what he came to earth to do. At this point in time, they don't know anything about the resurrection, but they certainly know about his power, okay? So faith in Christ is not blind faith, it's based on evidence, okay? The five disciples actually see Christ do something miraculous, and John gives us an eyewitness account, gives eyewitness account of this for us to read today and forever to help us put our faith and trust in Christ as well. But the evidence is not uh, an end to itself. The gospel must be heard and understood before saving faith can happen. Faith occurs when someone moves from the evidence and calls upon or asks Christ to save us. Okay, in Romans chapter 9, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you, are, that you profess your faith, and are saved. So, in conclusion, the miracle of changing water into wine seems to be an unspectacular, inconspicuous uh, miracle. If we, if we mistakenly look at it as just for what it accomplished for this couple, okay? However, it's my prayer that when we see what it accomplished spiritually, we have a deeper appreciation for this miracle, that we will appreciate Christ more that we will understand Christ's glory correctly, uh, the weightiness of it and his perfections and what we are relative to that and we need that, okay? And that we understand it correctly and that our faith and trust in him will be reinforced, those who are believers, for those of you who aren't believers or aren't yet, that it will begin just like it did for those five disciples. I'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, it was just a blessing uh, to open up your word and to understand it better myself. I pray that you would be glorified in what, what has happened today and that uh, you would just be with Pastor Joe once again as they're returning. Lord, you be with the ministry of this church and this community and then the different people here and the, and the influence they have and, and the friends that they have and the family that they would just uh, really be encouraged to share the good news of, uh, and of you and the Holy Spirit would use that for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.